all doing? Blessed. Blessed. Hashtag blessed. I like it. Um, would you all stand with me as we read from the book of 1 Kings, chapter 3, verses 5 through 12? The Lord appeared to Solomon at Gibeon in a dream at night. God said, ask whatever you wish and I will give it to you. Solomon responded, you showed so much kindness to your servant, my father David, when he walked before you in truth, in righteousness, and with a heart true to you. You've kept this great loyalty and kindness for him and have now given him a son to sit on his throne. And now, Lord my God, you have made me your servant, king in my father David's place. But I'm young and inexperienced. I know next to nothing. But I am here, your servant, in the middle of the people that you have chosen, a large population that can't be numbered or counted due to its vast size. Please give your servant a discerning mind in order to govern your people and to distinguish good from evil, because no one is able to govern this important people of yours without your help. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had made this request. God said to him, because you have asked for this instead of requesting long life, wealth, or victory over your enemies, asking for discernment so as to acquire good judgment, I will now do just what you said. Look, I hereby give you a wise and understanding mind. There has been no one like you before now, nor will there be anyone like you afterward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. He may be seated. So when I first read this text... You may be like me, but it was impossible for me not to think about probably my favorite Disney movie ever, which is Aladdin. Anybody else? Anybody else think of Aladdin when they hear this story? No? I'm the only one? Oh, Skylar, thank you. I'm glad I'm not the only one. So Aladdin, if we're, are we there, James? There we go. There's Aladdin. Aladdin is this, uh, oh. Wait a second. There's Aladdin. Aladdin is this poor and rather dreamy looking street urchin that goes around the streets of Agrabah and he steals from uh, the marketplace with, his, with the help of his best friend, Monkey And after he comes into this kind of chance encounter with Princess Jasmine, he's thrown in jail. His only way out is to go find this magic lamp. And so he, he goes and he, he helps evil Jafar to find this uh, lamp. He realizes Jafar is evil. Abu steals the lamp back and Aladdin and Abu are trapped inside the cave of wonders. And it's there that he meets for the first time the genie. And we're going to watch a short clip because I love this movie so much. Something written here, but it's, it's hard to make out. 
That's God in this story, right? He's just a magic genie that grants Solomon's wish. No? This, this idea... That clip went on longer than I anticipated. Um, but I feel like that is a common misconception of, of who God is, right? Um, this idea that a magical genie that grants three wishes, uh, this idea has been around for a long time. Um, and I'm sure many of us have been in some kind of group icebreaker questions where that... that question is posed of like, if you found a magic lamp with a genie in it, what would your three wishes be? Um, I almost did it as our community queue this morning, but I liked Mike's better. Um, but at face value, I would say that this story, it's easy to, to read this story through that lens, through the lens of God being this genie and Solomon has somehow discovered this magic lamp and God pops out and says, all right, you get one wish. What do you want? And Solomon says, you know, I think I want some wisdom. And God says, boom, wish granted, and they're off. That's the easy way of reading this story, right? But I would say that that is not at all the accurate way of reading this story. What I want us to be on the same page about from the get-go this morning is that God is not a genie. God is not some magical being that grants our wishes when we pray in the right way God's not a vending machine. God doesn't just give us what we want because we ask for it. This story that we'll, we're going to dive into is about God asking and then granting Solomon's desire. Um, and it's often been interpreted in this way, in a way that I would say at, at best is poor theology and at worst is really dangerous theology. That we can get ourselves into a lot of predicaments if we believe that God is a genie, that God is a vending machine. So that's not what this story is teaching us. That's not what this story is about. So let's get into what it is talking about. Um, the reality of it is, is that it's a lot more complicated than the movie Aladdin. I wish I could just walk through the plot of Aladdin and send you out and that would be good. But it's not that simple. Um, interestingly enough, our lectionary passage that I read this morning, it started in verse 5, went through verse 12. Um, but it leaves out a very convenient chunk of the story. It seems to kind of avoid some of the more uh, difficult, harder to digest information that is provided for us in 1 Kings chapter 3. 
um, important information that is about God and or Solomon and his interaction with God. Um, but because I'm a pastor, because I'm duty bound to preach the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth of scripture. Um, I'm going to start by reading a few extra verses right at the beginning. Um, chapter three, verses one through four, just before our passage, it says Solomon became the son-in-law of Pharaoh, Egypt's King. When he married, married Pharaoh's daughter, he brought her to David's city until he finished building his Royal palace, the Lord's temple and the wall around Jerusalem. Unfortunately, the people were sacrificing at the shrines because the temple hadn't yet been built for the Lord's name in those days. Now Solomon loved to walk in the laws of his father David, with the exception that he also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines. The king went to the great shrine at Gibeon in order to sacrifice there. He used to offer a thousand entirely burned offerings on that altar. So this kind of serves as a little bit of an introduction to this chapter, and it gives us some insight on Solomon. First of all, Solomon marries Pharaoh's daughter. Um, and marriage between two royal parties like this was very common in that day. It's, it's pretty common in our world today as well. Um, but essentially the idea is that it's a political strategy so that royalty marries royalty and they can stay royal, right? Purely royal, um, and so in order to keep this royal family pure, they marry someone of a different royal family. Um, but it also prevented conflict between those two nations, between those two parties, uh, because they were now tied as family. And nobody argues with family, right? Right, 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 right. Um, but this is not considered wise or good in God's eyes. Um, God has instructed the people of Israel not to marry from other nations because, as it says later in 1 Kings, they will surely incline your heart to follow their gods. So essentially, these people who are not from the nation of Israel, they worship other gods, they worship these pagan gods, and by marrying with them, by being unequally yoked, as you might um, have heard before from the New Testament, then they will be more inclined to start to follow those other pagan gods rather than the one true God, Yahweh. And this kind of serves as a little bit of foreshadowing for us. Um, Solomon's love of these foreign women eventually led to his spiritual ruin further on down the line. And although it doesn't happen until he's a much older man, um, his first marriage here to this Egyptian princess that it talks about in verse one, it sets this pattern for his life. It sets a pattern of where he is um, allured by the things of the world, allured by things that make political sense rather than things that maybe make spiritual sense. And the second thing is that Solomon had a great, ooh, sorry. Solomon had a great faith with exception. Verse three says that Solomon loved the Lord by walking in the laws of his father, David, with the exception that he also sacrificed and burned incense at the shrines. And so there's kind of this good and bad assessment of Solomon in this verse there's the good in that he generally followed in the footsteps of his father, David, who was, as we hear in other parts of scripture, a man after God's own heart. So David is this great king, this great follower of God. He is in right relationship with God for much of his life. And Solomon is following in those footsteps. So there is good. But then there is bad. Anytime it talks about following in the Lord's footsteps, but or following in the Lord's footsteps or the, the footsteps of his father, David, who loved the Lord. 
with the exception of something. Following God is not something that we can do with exception. We follow in the footsteps of God as a way of surrendering all that we are, of, of dying to self, right? We give up all of those except fors. We give up all of those buts. We give up those things that we hold to ourselves and say, I'm not going to surrender this to God. We give those up when we follow God. But we see here in verse 3 that Solomon doesn't give that up. He, he has this great faith with the exception of this other practice of worship. So in these verses just before the passage, um, that is the one we're really focusing on today, we see a couple of these kind of not so pretty ideas of who Solomon is. He chooses this personal and political wisdom over spiritual wisdom. And although he follows in the footsteps of this great man who his father David was, he withholds a part of his worship. He has that exception. And I wanted to start with the larger context of this passage to say this, that although this passage talks about this young man who recognizes God's faithfulness to his father in his day, he recognizes his own immaturities, he recognizes the greatness of God's people and the responsibility that comes with leading those people, and he recognizes that God's wisdom is what he needs more than anything else. Although this passage reveals that about who Solomon is, it doesn't make sense unless we view it in this larger picture, in this full picture of the full context of Solomon's life. And so we'll, we'll get back to that later on. Um, but back to our specific text this morning. It can largely be broken into kind of two, two categories here, two parts. Solomon's request and then God's blessing. So let's take a deeper look first at some of the particulars of Solomon's request. First of all, Solomon uses the word the Hebrew word chesed. And if you were with us in Sunday school probably about a year ago, or if you're familiar with the Bible Project and their their, uh, character of God series, you may have heard this word before. Chesed. Everybody say it with me. Chesed. Make it real guttural. Chesed. Uh, This essentially means the steadfast love. And it's translated in our... our, uh, the Bible that we read from, the Common English Bible. It's translated as loyalty and kindness, but it's translated other places as steadfast love, as loving kindness, as loyal love. And it combines kind of these ideas of unconditional love, of generosity, and of faithful commitment, regardless of of what someone has done to deserve that faithful commitment. It combines all these ideas, and that is this Hebrew word chesed. So Solomon is using this word here. He uses it twice, and he kind of creates a little sandwich, a chesed sandwich, if you will, around his understanding of his father, David, and his relationship with God. So he starts by praising God's chesed, his steadfast, loyal love. He then notes his father, David's faithfulness, righteousness, uprightness of heart, and then he goes back to that chesed. So he sandwiches who he knows God to be, the loyal love of God, with his father's relationship. And so even before he responds to God's question about what he desires, what he wishes for, he takes this time to remember how God was at work through the generations of his family, how God was at work in his family 
who he knows God to be based on what he has seen, what he has experienced, what he has heard. And even more than just how God has been faithful, Solomon uses this word chesed as a recognition that God has been loyal and loving to them for no other reason than the fact that it's who God is. It's a part of God's character. It's not because uh, David was faithful to God. It's not because David was better than anyone else, but it is because this idea of steadfast, loyal love is just a part of who God is. So in Solomon's recognition of this great and wonderful chesed, he comes before God in great humility. And I love humility. He uses these words like your servant um, regarding himself, regarding his father, David. He uses uh, the phrase little child or young and inexperienced. He says he knows next to nothing or in another translation, I do not know how to go out or come in. And this was a military phrase at the time um, that's used several other places in the Old Testament that is always in regard to the leaders of Israel. I do not know how to go out or to come in. What he is saying is that he does not know how to lead this great people. He's communicating his humility. He recognizes his shortcomings and he is, he's being upfront with them. This is not him just saying, you know, I'm not good enough. I give up because that's not, That's not the way we do life, right? We don't just give up because we're not good enough at something. Instead, his attitude here is that this job is so much bigger than me. This job is so out of my own abilities that I have to rely on God, that I need God to help me in this leadership. So it's Solomon's kind of poetic way, as we know Solomon is a very poetic kind of a guy. It's his poetic way of expressing that he is completely inadequate for this job that he has been given, for this responsibility he has been given. He faces this incredible task of leading God's great people, this numerous people, this chosen people of God. And so he starts with that, and that is when we arrive at his request. And so I'm going to read that again In in, uh, verse 9, he says, Please give your servant a discerning mind in order to govern your people and to distinguish good from evil, because no one is able to govern this important people of yours without your help. So as king, Solomon was expected to administer justice and righteousness to the people of God. He was expected to lead them in that way. His responsibility was to rule them with that justice and with that righteousness, to do what is right and to lead them into what is right. So understanding his responsibility here, understanding his own inadequacy to live up to that, and understanding God's faithful, loyal love that can get him through this, Solomon asks for God to give him a discerning mind in order to govern your people and to distinguish good from evil. This request for discernment, for understanding, and an understanding mind, this is a pretty unique request. It's also translated as listening heart, um, which we could get into that because I love talking about words, but I'm not going to today. I'm going to refrain. Um, But a listening heart, a a discerning mind, it implies that there is this listening and this discernment and this understanding that does not come from our own abilities, does not come from human abilities. It comes from God and who God is. 
And there's two real big things that stick out to me about Solomon's request. First of all, it is in no way self-seeking. This request is for the good of others rather than the good of Solomon. This is not Solomon asking for knowledge and wisdom so that he can be better than or superior to or more knowledgeable or more wise than anyone else. It's not so that he can stand and look down upon others. It is so that he can do well for them, that he can bring good to God's people. His request is for him to receive this wisdom in order to, or so that he can build them up so that he can do what is right for them. And that is true of the kingdom of God, isn't it? The kingdom of God is not a self-serving kingdom. It's not something that we are a part of just so that we can receive something, just so that we can make it to heaven. The kingdom of God is something that fills us so that we can go out and bless others in order to go save the lost, heal the sick, lift up the poor. The fruit of the spirit are not a fruit that we just harbor to ourselves, that we consume and we say, yes, I am more patient and gentle and kind. Those are all outward things. The fruit of the spirit is made true in our lives so that we can be a blessing with it to those outside. So first of all, it is not self-seeking. Second of all, it is character building. Solomon does not ask for his own riches, his own honor, because God doesn't care about those things. God doesn't care about the ways that, that we are more wealthy, that we are more popular, that we are more well-liked. That's not what God is interested in. God is interested in our hearts. God is interested in our character. God is interested in whether or not we are images of him whether we are truthful and loving and compassionate. And he does not want to withhold these gifts from us. He's not just saying, ah, you, you don't quite deserve it yet. God is wanting to give us those gifts if we seek him, if we seek out those gifts. So while wisdom is obviously innate to Solomon to a certain extent, right, with, with how he brings forward this request, with how he recognizes his own insufficiencies with how he recognizes this great responsibility. There's obviously some wisdom to this young man already. And yet he asks for this discerning mind that he recognizes is not innate, that he recognizes is true to the character of God, not to the character of Solomon. It's this supernatural gift from God. That's not achieved by us working harder or striving more or being more careful in our self-discipline it's achieved by the gracious work of God in us. So then we get to God's response to this request. And it's also a rather peculiar one. Um, one that can also lend itself to some poor theology, um, some bad interpretation. And since the lectionary also cuts off the end of this, I'm going to, to read uh, the end of our passage and then a couple more verses. So starting in verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had made this request. God said to him, because you have asked for this, instead of requesting long life, wealth, or victory over your enemies, asking for discernment so as to acquire good judgment, I will now do just what you said. 
Look, I hereby give you a wise and understanding mind. There has been no one like you before now, nor will there be anyone like you afterward. I now also give you what you didn't ask for, wealth and fame. There won't be a king like you as long as you live. And if you walk in my ways and obey my laws and commands, just as your father David did, then I will give you a very long life. So this, this narrator of this story seems to have some kind of intimate knowledge of God's thoughts. And the, the narrator writes that God was pleased with Solomon's response. But perhaps more than what Solomon asks for, it appears that God kind of is pleased with what he doesn't ask for. God twice praises Solomon's request, not being about wealth or about fame, which would have been probably pretty likely for other kings of that day, probably would be pretty likely of a lot of humans in our day today. Asking for wealth or for fame. So God twice praises his request to not ask for those. But God takes it even one step further and everything that Solomon didn't ask for is also given to him. Riches and honor, it says, in incomparable fashion, beyond what he can imagine. And even more, God then grants this long life. But this long life that is, well, it has kind of a contingency built in. He says, and if you walk in my ways and obey my laws and commands, just as your father David did, then I will give you a very long life. Just as Solomon had reminded God of David in his request, God then reminds Solomon of David in his response. God doesn't just answer Solomon's prayer, but he answers it beyond all expectation, gives him more than what he asked for. And I would say that that is pretty evident of the God that we see in scripture, that God wants to give in overabundance. God wants to give beyond what we deserve, beyond what we even can ask or imagine, right? As Paul writes in uh, one of his letters, Ephesians, I believe it is. And Solomon experiences that. He experiences God's ability and willingness to give in more abundance than he could even ask or imagine. And I, I read this as God just proud dad moment, right? He is just so giddy that his son Solomon has asked for this wonderful request. But again, it's not because Solomon is asking for something that makes him better, makes him more important. It's because Solomon is asking for what will grow his character, not what will grow his, his possessions, not what will grow his value to those around him, but what will grow his character, what will, what will turn him in God's eyes into someone who is more like God, more like the one he was created to be like. Because God, again, is more concerned about our character, how we are living into that image of God, into that imago Dei, how we are being shaped and formed to be more like him. That is what God is concerned about. So Solomon's request causes God to say, I am really proud of you, Solomon, because it is this appeal for him to receive more of God, not to receive more of Solomon or more for Solomon. It is to receive more of God. So if we read on in first Kings, we find that Solomon failed. We, we read stories like we do with probably all biblical characters other than the three in one. 
um, we, f- we see that Solomon failed. Even though he has this, this great discerning mind that God has given him, even though he has this wealth and this fame and this long life, Solomon fails. He gives in to this allure of the world around him. He gives in to this, the, the lies that the world around him tells him about what is important and valuable. Because the world can offer us a whole lot of shortcuts and a whole lot of, of beautiful things, or at least things that appear beautiful. The world can offer us lots of opportunities to discover our truth, to discover how best to love ourselves. The world can give us all of this fake wisdom and fake love and fake truth beyond what we could ever hope for. But that's all that it is, is fake. Because the thing that it can't grant us is that character-building grace that God brings to us, offers to us, gives to us through the person of Jesus Christ. So Solomon's wisdom was great. It was fantastic. But there has come into our world now someone who is greater than Solomon, who is far more worthy of our admiration, far more worthy of our love. Scripture tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God and man. His wisdom was, was pure and deeper and truer than Solomon's because it was united with God. When Solomon failed to walk in God's ways, as was warned in granting the long life, when he failed to walk in God's ways and obey God's laws and commands, Jesus succeeded. Solomon's request for this wisdom It embodies this important kingdom ethic that God desires for all of humanity, you and me alike. But Solomon couldn't give up that kingdom ethic. And I know all of us in this room have failed to live up to that kingdom ethic as well. Because we cannot stay true to what God has called us to, what God has created us to do, because there's this nasty little thing called sin. That little if... In verse 14 that God gives to Solomon, it it proved to be too big of an if for Solomon. That if you walk in this way, it proves to be too big of an if for us too, right? I hope we can all admit that. But where us sinful humans failed, Jesus succeeds. Where us humans fail, Jesus doesn't fail. And that's the theme of this entire book right here. That there are lots of humans throughout history, all humans throughout history who have failed, except for one named Jesus. When humanity could not, Jesus made a way. And for as great as Solomon was, his life merely points to a king who is far greater than himself, a king who rules in this perfect wisdom and truth and perfect faithfulness, perfect chesed that Solomon could never. Solomon points us to this perfect king, the one who would reign in wisdom and in power and in truth and would never falter in his trust and faith in God, who would reign forevermore, Jesus Christ, the true king, the wise king, God's steadfast and loyal love that Solomon appeals to in the first place is the reason that Christ came. He was sent to live this perfect life, 
that we were created to live, but that we fail to live. And he sacrificed himself so that we might be restored into that right relationship with God. That right relationship with our creator, how we were created to be. And in just a moment, we are going to take communion. And communion is a reminder of that sacrifice that Christ made for us. It's a way that we recognize who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. Communion is a sacrament. It's an act of God's grace in our lives, which speaks to the life, the suffering, the sacrificial death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It shows forth the Lord's death until his return. Communion is what we call a means of grace. It is a way in which Christ is present by the Spirit, and we are to receive communion with the knowledge and the thankfulness of the work of Christ in our midst, in our world. And you don't have to be a member of this church to participate in this. All that's asked is that you would recognize that you are a sinner, just like me, in need of God's perfect, restorative, healing grace that can only come from the sacrifice and the work of Christ. And we are all invited to participate in this together, the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ, by coming around this table to be renewed, to be restored in life and in salvation, to be made one, united by the Holy Spirit. So, in unity with the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and that Christ will come again. Let's pray. Holy God, we gather here at your table in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. By your Spirit, he was anointed to preach good news to the poor proclaim release to the captives, to set free those who are oppressed. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, ate with sinners, and established the new covenant for forgiveness of sins. God, we live in the hope of his coming again and in the peace that only your kingdom can provide. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke the bread gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then when the supper was over, he took the cup. He gave thanks. He gave it to his disciples and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So we, as the body of Christ, offer ourselves to you, God, in praise and in thanksgiving, Would you pour out your spirit on us and on these, your gifts? Make them by the power of your Holy Spirit to be for us the body and the blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other, and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. A quick uh, instruction on this. Um, I'm going to have Tasha come up and help me uh, pass these out. We're going to make a circle here. So this is going to be the line that you come down to pick up your elements, and then you'll exit back up this aisle um, just to avoid as few head-on collisions as possible. Um, But as we come, may we come with this heart of recognizing that we are never enough, that only Christ is enough. 
that Christ is offering himself to you to forgive your sins, to call you into new life with him. So would you come now, um, again, down this aisle and up this aisle, would you come and receive this gift?